using aileron and crosswind landings, 10-minute or 10-mile markers, and aviation job experience requirements. Why do they seem so ridiculous? All this and more coming right up, so strap in and let's get into it. G'day everyone and welcome to episode 44 of Flight Training Australia, the podcast all about flight training and flying in Australia and beyond. I'm your host Trent Robinson and thank you for joining me. Hope you're well wherever you are on this amazing planet of ours. How's the weather where you've been? Seeing heaps of fog down south, bit of rain, bit of sun. Uh, we've even started getting a little bit of moisture back up here in the top end. A uh, bit of fog forming from here to here. And uh, yeah, put the aircon on for the first time today for a little while. So it's definitely starting to change. If you're just joining the podcast, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Uh, I trust you'll find it both informative and entertaining. To my regulars, again, as always, thanks for sticking around. Uh Patreon is uh, the podcast membership page for Flight Training Australia, where you can become a member and support the podcast and everything that goes into it. I'm currently saving up for uh, some YouTube videos, particularly some engineering orders for external camera mounts to help with the YouTube products and uh, some other projects that I've got planned. So if you'd like to help out, then head over to patreon.com forward slash flight training Australia, pick a membership plan and get on board. And the bonus is that this is a self-education resource, so it is tax deductible. Yep, that's right, tax deductible, just like a magazine subscription. So pick up a tier and help me out whilst helping yourself. Lost Cost has wrapped up for another year in America, and uh, what a sight to see. Uh, it's just the biggest flying in the world. I was fortunate enough to attend way back in 1991. Yes, I am that old. Uh, I was in year nine at the time. Uh, just after Desert Storm, I still remember staring at F-117 Nighthawk right in the face. Uh, not to mention all the other fighter jets and an incredible array of warbirds, including some of my favourites like the B-17 and Mustangs, just rows of them. Um, things you'll just never see here in Australia in shows like that on such a scale. So uh, it's pretty incredible. If you don't know much about it, it's it's a huge fly-in by EAA, uh, the Experimental Aircraft Association. And one of the fascinating things beyond the show is actually getting there. I don't know if you've seen some of the YouTube videos of the uh, the radar of just the aircraft approaching Oshkosh and the phenomenal work the tower controllers do on getting everyone onto land. And... It's quite a unique setup in many ways. A, there's multiple aircraft landing on the one runway at the same time, and the pilots pretty much don't say anything. It's just instructions after instruction, and if you don't do what they're telling you to do, they'll keep talking at you until you do. Um, yeah, check out. There's videos on YouTube all about it. But the main bit I wanted to talk about, and this comes up year after year um, on these sort of events, is landings, and in particular when there's a crosswind. Now, Oshkosh is quite renowned for having a bit of a crosswind, just the way the runway is laid out. And the way the aircraft are brought in to Oshkosh partially creates the problem, but also there's just a real lack of crosswind technique and understanding on display here. And so many aircraft are ground looping for tailwheels or dropping wings 
um, and just getting themselves into all sorts of strife and no doubt giving themselves a scare and unfortunately for some resulting in aircraft damage. So I just wanted to talk about it a little bit. Now, the way Oshkosh is unique, as I said, is landing multiple aircraft on the runway at the same time. And the way they do this is they have a series of coloured dots along the runway. So essentially what they're going to do is a uh, normal approach and then do a long landing. So then they'll put power on and try and fly level with the runway, essentially in ground effect thereabouts, although some get that wrong as well and then plonk it down on the coloured dot when they eventually get to it. Or, as they probably should do, um, try not to do such a short final, aim further into the runway towards their actual dot. Now, I understand part of this would be the uh, the vectoring and, and the guidance given by the controllers. But what happens is the aircraft and the pilot end up in an unstable configuration. Now... I'm often talking about stabilised approach criteria. And again, for those who aren't familiar or may not have called it that but are probably already doing it, it can be just simple as if the aircraft is not properly configured by 300 feet, then you go around. As you start to get a little bit more complicated, particular speeds get nominated. Um, as I've referenced into the MOZ multiple times, we have approach speeds with a, a minus and a plus speed limit, usually minus 5, plus 10 thereabouts, uh, of speed range. Again, to minimise float and uh, getting too fast, too slow, long landings, all that sort of thing. So the aircraft are coming down, and then they try and put power on a fly level along the runway. And this obviously leaves them at the mercy of the elements for a lot longer than you would normally get. And you start seeing aircraft become unstable and they're a little bit shaky and, yeah, you start going, oh, my God. And I'm sure you've all been in the uh, the aero club or the uh, aircraft viewing area or somewhere where you're watching other aircraft coming into land and you know exactly what I'm talking about. So stabilised approach is one thing, but then the actual crosswind approach and landing itself is something else. Now, there's two ways to do this, and obviously it's going to vary for your type of aircraft. Um, you watch airline videos, and airliners coming into land, they will land sideways. They're designed to do that, and then they kick it straight and bring the aircraft down. That's what they're supposed to do. But for the light aircraft, that's not what we're meant to do. We need to be getting the nose straight with rudder, and then to counteract that yaw and not deviate from the runway, we counteract that with aileron or opposite aileron into wind. We drop the interwind wheel onto the runway first and then the main wheel and then the nose wheel as we gradually increase the aileron input and settle the aircraft onto the runway. Now that's what's supposed to happen, but it very rarely does. One of the most poorly uh, done things I probably see um, and many instructors would see for crosswind landings is lack of aileron input now the aileron input is what is going to keep you straight down the runway um, and get the right wing down if you allow the wind to get up and under your interwind wing it will start to lift and drop you onto your downwind wheel first 
And this is where the danger lies, because that's what's going to potentially increase the risk of a right wing tip uh, ground strike, all right? Or left, of course, depends which way the wind's coming from, but we'll say it's coming from the left. So one of the things to really pay attention to to help of all this can actually start on the ground when you're lined up on the runway. Even coming in on final, how many times have you thought I'm lined up with the runway nice and straight and your instructor's gone, no, we're off to the left or off to the right? So understanding the perspective of the runway and lining it up with your reference points on the aircraft cockpit, uh, the engine dash or panel, really, really important. So you've usually got some rivets or some screws or something like that that you can line up on the ground and have a look at the extended center line. And if you don't have a center line, then imagine where the middle of the runway is and see where that is intersecting on your engine cowling because that's going to show you when the nose is straight. And you'll know if it's straight or not because once you touch down, everything's very smooth. If you jolt left or right, well, you know you got it wrong. So really work on getting the perspective right and getting the nose nice and straight. So you need to apply rudder and you need to hold that rudder in. Now this is where crosswinds can get tricky. If the crosswind isn't steady, i.e. gusting up and down, you've got to increase and decrease that rudder input. And that is quite a challenge for someone trying to learn the skill. But if it's a solid crosswind, then we can apply the rudder until the nose is straight. Once that's done, the aircraft's going to come left or right of the center line because we're not crabbed into wind anymore. All right, so if our wind's coming from the left, the nose is going to be pointing left, so we want some right rudder. And then, as I said before, as we do that to compensate for the, the drift change, we're going to put some aileron in. And the aileron will now hold the center line. So the rudder's keeping you straight, and the aileron, we can actually bank left, bank right, and just maneuver left and right of the center line. And one of the ways to practice this for crosswind landings is doing a maneuver called a low approach, where we don't actually touch the ground. Uh, we don't do a landing. We just fly low along the runway just to really get that depth perception to figure out where the ground is and how much rudder and aileron input we need to do. Now, sometimes as you're learning, it's easier to do this um, on sort of mid-short final position. Get the rudder straight put a bit of aileron in and hold it. And that's what we call crab or crabbing. All right, so you crab it down to the runway. As you get better and more experienced, you'll be able to come down, round out to the flare height, kick it straight, put some aileron in all at once. All right, but start with trying to do it a little bit sooner and just get the feel. Just remember, if the wind speed's changing, you're going to have to adjust. Also, the wind could be different 100, 200 feet above the ground compared to down low, especially if you're coming into a runway shielded with trees or something. Once we touch, airspeed is going to decrease. Control effectiveness is going to decrease. So we gradually increase the aileron input, typically to full aileron by the time we come to a stop or slow speed. However, different aircraft, different aileron response. Some aircraft have very big ailerons and they're very uh, reactive. You get good control effectiveness. So learn your aircraft and what's going to get it all uh, balanced and, and the right amount of input for the type of wind that you're experiencing. Takeoffs, 
are simply the reverse. Sometimes you might take off and scuff across the runway. We can actually take off with full interwind aileron or, as appropriate, smoothly apply full power. And as we build up to our rotate speed, we should be at that point pretty much ailerons neutral. And then as we lift off, just a little bit of rudder into the wind to yaw it. And that way you won't drop a wing on takeoff. So there's some techniques and things to help. Have a look at those YouTube videos at Oshkosh Landings and any other, and you'll see very little aileron input. And the ones that come to grief, the ailerons are almost dead set level. Had they put some aileron in, it would have applied a bit of downforce and hopefully kept the wheels on the ground and uh, would have avoided a disaster. All right. Good luck. Um, now, a question I've got recently is 10-minute or 10-mile markers on navigation charts, and it's a really good question. I have talked about this before, but... I remember doing my training and I was taught 10-minute 10, um, 10 markers. So what we would do every 10 minutes based on our ground speed for that particular leg, we would put a, uh, a mark on our chart and then that's where we'd do a positive fix. The problem is, and as it so often is up here in the Territory and, and, and further away from regional or you know major centres, is the features become less and less and there might not be enough features at that 10-minute point to get a positive fix. So we do a rough fix, which kind of defeats the whole purpose of getting a positive fix. All right, so for a positive fix, we really are looking for at least two, but preferably three uh, unique features at that particular point, which don't have to be directly below you. They could be things out and about that you're sort of doing a back bearing from and, and triangulating your position off that. And that helps work out exactly where you are. But you don't want to just say there's a road and a railway and a, a town or anything because there's roads and railways and towns all over the place. You want to be specific about their orientation. They might have a kink and a bend um, and, and their proximity to other things. So big features leading to small features. All right. So that's our 10-minute markers. 10-mile markers are not meant to be position-fixed markers. 10-mile markers are to break up your leg in 10-mile increments. So as you're trundling along, you can see just visually fairly easily, roughly, how far you've gone and how far you've got to go on your leg. But they're not meant to be a positive fix. It's just too quick. Even in a 172, doing 90 knots, you're doing a mile and a half a minute. All right, So you're going to be doing that very, very regularly. You want to, even something faster, you'll be doing two mile a minute. So every five miles, that's just crazy. Sorry, every five minutes. All right, so the idea is you want to break up your leg and you want to find about a positive fix every 20 minutes or so of flight time. So if you have a 40-minute leg, you want to find about two positive fixes. Somewhere along that route, it doesn't have to be evenly spaced apart, but obviously the idea is to get a positive fix that you know where you are. So if in that next segment you somehow get yourself disorientated or lost, you haven't gone um, so far that you've got nothing to work back from. All right, And that way you'll find that you can actually 
nominate a point where you're going to get some actual features that you can lock in your position with and you're not going to be sitting there doing these uh, clear offs or whatever mnemonic you're using so often that it just almost loses its purpose and value. Remember, the whole point is to fix your position, check your frequencies and your um, your fuel and just considerations of your environment around you and airspace, and then chuck everything on the back seat, look out the window, pick a reference point and go for it. So many students on nav flights don't get to see the view, and that's just a crying shame. And if that's the case, you're doing it wrong. And I'm not talking about the first couple of navs. Of course, you're going to be fully engaged but once you start to settle in you should have heaps of time to smell the roses as they say and yeah enjoy the view all right so 10 minute markers i'd tend to leave those alone mark your 10 miles every 10 miles so you can keep an eye of where you're at and picking a positive fix every 20 minutes or so uh, along your route and that should work out pretty good for you all right now, who's applying for a job at the moment? Uh, been great to meet a heap of you up here in the Territory and uh, help some of you. I'm trying to squeeze in uh, two 10 checks as best I can uh, to help people out and to introduce them to some of the operators up here. But one of the things you'll notice uh, if you're looking at job ads, either uh, on some of the JobShare Facebook pages or on AFAP, is the experience requirements. And I note a lot of the comments on there of everyone uh, making jokes and having a bit of a laugh and uh, referring to uh, space shuttle experience and everything else. And I, I get that. Looking at that sometimes kind of think, wow, what are they doing? Like it's a 206, how hard is it? What a lot of people don't understand is a lot of these minimum hour requirements aren't the companies per se, but the contracts that they hold. Uh, up here in Darwin... There's a lot of uh, health, medical, government um, work, and those contracts are issued to operators whose pilots meet minimum hour requirements. And so sometimes you'll see for what would appear a first job kind of operator, um, anywhere up to 500 hours minimum time, which could look at first point quite um, overreaching and unnecessary. It's not about the complexity of the aircraft that that company is particularly operating necessarily. And it's not that the company feels that that's the kind of experience they need to operate their airplanes. Right? It's to meet contract requirements. So part of that process is there are opportunities still within those companies to maybe fly and do jobs um, that don't require those contracts. However, from an operator's point of view, that can be a rostering nightmare when they've got staff on hand that can only do some flights and not others uh, with days on and off and leave and everything else. So the preference where possible is usually to have everybody skilled for any, you know, within reason, anything that they do. All right. Other ones are probably a little bit over the top. And uh, I'll leave you to determine which ones those are and maybe just discuss with the operator and find out, are your experience requirements uh, for contracts or is that what you would like to see in a pilot? And then maybe you can uh, justify where your hours uh, fall short um, and uh, sell yourself another way and see how you go. 
All right, but um, yeah, just be aware that that's why um, a lot of these government-orientated contracts are so high because uh, someone decided that that was an appropriate number of hours to fly people around. And while that may or may not be justified, and whether you agree with it or not, that's that's where it's at. So take that into consideration when you're applying. Uh, just remember, if you are applying for jobs, to keep those resumes short and sweet, keep them relevant to the job you're going for. And you can double check my episode where I talk about preparing your resume and job interviews and that um, in the other episodes on the podcast player you are currently utilizing. All right, that's it for this week. I hope that all helps and uh, you found that informative. You can email me, info at trentrobinsonaviation.com.au and also social media, Trent Robinson Aviation on Facebook and Instagram and you can also find me on LinkedIn. Until next week, blue skies and remember the golden rule. Aviate, navigate, communicate. Cheers, everybody.